0: Thank you, men. Praise the Lord for that. He still answers prayer. <coughs> wow. Well, for those of you that might not know me, my name is Dan Hoflinger. I am not one of our pastors, so if you are visiting with us today, please come back again and give us another hearing, I suppose. But uh, Pastor Ferguson asked me to fill in this morning while they are gone, and uh, Scotts are gone as well. And I suppose Pastor Dan's had a busy week, I guess. Um but we thank the Lord for all the things that are going on here. It has been a busy few weeks, but the song has been sung, God answering prayer. Many prayers have been offered in these last few weeks for the different events that are going on, and we've seen God do some amazing things. So it is wonderful. Uh, but as he asked me about this morning, I I prayed and I said, Lord, it, I need something that's been meaningful to me, I think, uh, to speak about. And obviously all of his word is profitable and it's all meaningful well, there was something he brought to mind that over the last few weeks has been a thought in my heart, on my mind. Would you turn to 1 Kings chapter 2 with me? We'll start in 1 Kings chapter 2, where we find a man in a an interesting situation, something very new for him, and this is Solomon, the son of King David, David's about to die, it's at the end of his life, and David challenges his son Solomon for what it is he's going to be dealing with the, the throne of the kingdom of Israel. As you come to 1 Kings chapter two, I'll read just a couple of verses here to begin. Look at verse number two, David's speaking, and he says, "I go the way of all the earth." He's going to die. He says, "Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord thy God to walk in His ways, to keep His statutes and His commandments." and his judgments and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses. Thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest, and whithersoever thou turnest thyself. David wants his son to be successful as the king of Israel. And so he challenges him to follow the word of God and to show himself a man. Let's pray as we begin here this morning. Father, I thank you for this opportunity. That I do not take lightly. I thank you for your word and how you speak through it by your spirit to us. We pray that the words this morning would be yours, and you would challenge our hearts. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's Solomon. David has been a man of war, and he has fought many enemies round about. And at this point, there's a great deal of peace that has come to the children of Israel. And yet there are many things that Solomon's going to have to deal with. If we were to go all the way through chapter 2, we find David listing people that have been unfaithful to him. And he's telling Solomon, they're going to be unfaithful to you, even one of Solomon's brothers will try to take the throne from him, and he has all of this that he has to deal with. This is all new. At the beginning of chapter 3 in verse 1, we find him making an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and taking Pharaoh's daughter to be his wife. So he's he's making political alliances as well. And eventually, we, perhaps knowing the rest of the story, could look to 2 Kings and find that there would be days in his kingdom where it was said that silver was nothing accounted of. In the days of Solomon, there was so much wealth and prosperity in his nation. If they wanted something nice, he used gold. I mean, what is silver? It was nothing accounted of. But at this point, as he's beginning, he's seeing nothing but challenges. And it's a new, it's a new life for him. He doesn't know exactly what it is that he's going to do. And, and we can find ourselves in those sorts of places. not that any of us will be king or queen of Israel. It's not what I'm expecting. But we come to new situations in life, perhaps a new job, a new family situation, a financial situation, a health situation, and we wonder what is it that we ought to do, and we we need guidance. And Solomon had wisdom to see this. If you were to jump down to chapter 3 with me, I'll read several verses starting in verse number 5. We read that in Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee, that thou hast kept for him this great kindness, that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David, my father, and I'm but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of this thy people, which thou hast chosen a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this, thy so great a people? And the speech please the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. You see, he has enough wisdom to realize he needs more wisdom. I don't, know how to, I don't know how to handle this, Lord. I need your help. But what has struck me over the last few weeks is the statement that God makes in verse number 5. Ask what I shall give thee. God's eternal, and he's with us right now, even as he is with Solomon then, and all of time is open before him. He knew what Solomon would answer, and he knew how he would work through Solomon all the days of his life, but what a statement to make. Ask what I shall give thee. Essentially, Solomon, it's open to anything you would ask for. God talks about this in the next few verses, that he didn't ask for great riches or the life of his enemies, or to have a long life for himself, all these other things that he might have asked for, but he sought wisdom from God instead. God praised him for that. But the question that was then in my mind is, is what, if, what if God said that to me? What would my answer be? I suppose as I say that, everyone here, something is coming to mind. I expect it does. And as I've thought about that the last couple of weeks, I suppose it was in my devotions. I came across this, and and it just stayed in my mind. And, And every time that that came to mind, every time there was one word that came to mind immediately. And I had to stop and think as I studied here, is that a biblical answer? I mean, if God were to prompt us, what is it that you desire? What is it that you seek above anything else? What would the answer be? And so in the time that we have. I'd like to look at three answers from God's word as how we might approach that question, how we might answer that question. What is it that we seek? What do we desire? If God were to say, ask what I shall give thee, what would you say? So turn back with me a few books, would you, to 1 Samuel. Samuel comes just before Kings. We'll find our first example here. Ultimately, the example is Samuel himself. But I want to start before that because the narrative, the story, the history of Samuel's life does not begin with him. Actually begins with his mother Hannah. And in First Samuel chapter one we find this amazing woman who wants to follow the Lord, but she's in a very difficult situation. Here in 1 Samuel 1, we find that she's actually one of two wives to Elkanah. And though the Bible never condones polygamy in any form, in the Old Testament it was often something that happened. It's not a good thing, and it caused many problems in many marriages. But here it's where she finds herself. It's not really her choice at this point. And she seeks to have children because in her day, very often, uh, women derived their self-worth, their feeling of importance or significance from how many children they had born to their husbands. And so what is it naturally she wants from, from a child growing up? This is what she wants uh, to bear children. And of course, she hasn't because God's prevented that. And so the other wife, she has, and this there's this, there's this difficulty. And I think she probably asked for many children. But eventually, as they went to the tabernacle to worship the Lord year by year, and she made her requests of God, it got down to the point where it's just one. If you would just give me one. Look look to verse number 10 in 1 Samuel. They're at the tabernacle to worship the Lord, and it says, She was in bitterness of soul, and prayed unto the Lord, and wept sore. And she vowed a vow, and said, O Lord of hosts, If thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid, and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but wilt give unto thine handmaid a man child. Then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. And I want to start with her, because it shows what her perspective is in this. You see her humility, not to even say I or me, but she calls herself your servant girl, your handmaid. And she asks for just one and says, If you'll give me a child, a little boy, he'll be yours. You see the no razor coming upon his head at the end of the verse, like the Nazarite vow. It's a sign of separation that this boy would be separated to follow and to serve God. And even his name, if you scan down to verse number 12, when she does bring this child forth, it says, wherefore it came to pass when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived that she bare a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked him for the Lord, Samuel, Shemuel, coming from Shema, and El, it means God." heard so every time she refers to her child someone asks the name of her child and calls her child as he's so small shimuel samuel every time she says god heard because he is the sign he is the answer to her request god had heard her and i say all that to say this this boy knew his purpose from the smallest as a child to the point that he was weaned and left at the tabernacle to serve god he knew he was there to serve the lord this is why he's here Suppose we could pause and say something about our purpose, because this is the same purpose. Our purpose is to serve the Lord. But he was fully aware of that, and that informs his thinking, his mindset, as chapter 3 comes to pass. Because in chapter 3, as he's at the tabernacle, and he's serving, some unusual events happen. He goes to bed one night, and he hears his name, Samuel. Must be Eli, must be the priest, the guy that I'm... Serving under, so he runs to Eli. Right? Says, "Hey, you called me, huh? No, no, go back to bed." Samuel, here it comes again. He runs to Eli. You called me? No, 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 I, I no. And I don't know if they think like the one's messing with the other, like maybe Eli's thinking I got this little kid and he thinks this is funny or something. And Samuel, you know, what does he think? Eli's getting old and he's maybe not quite with it anymore. I, I don't know what's going through their minds. He just. He, he, he's, he thinks, I'm calling him. I'm not calling him. And so he goes back to bed yet again. And if you look in chapter 3 of 1 Samuel, at verse number 9, excuse me, verse number 8, we read, the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, here am I, for thou didst call me. So Eli finally gets it. Eli perceived, he understood that the Lord had called the child. And therefore Eli said unto Samuel, go, lie down, and it shall be if he call thee that thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. I do wonder the thoughts of Samuel at this point for sure. He's just a little child. And the priest has said, God's trying to speak to you personally. Now today we have his word complete and he speaks through it. But in their day, things were different. He had established God had offices. There was the office of priest. That's what Eli's doing. And the people would come to the priest. They'd bring their offerings and the priest would offer those offerings to God. They would go to God on behalf of the people. They didn't have the ability that we do as believers in Christ, by the blood of Christ, to enter into God's presence in prayer. The song spoke about any time we choose. They went to the priests. And on the other side of that, you had the prophets. And God would come to a prophet and would give the prophet his word, and that prophet would then speak to the people. Uh, Praise God, we have this instead And his spirit within, that at any time we can read from his word, we can hear what he has to say. But for this little child, I mean, I can't imagine. Like, shouldn't you be speaking to Eli? Or, surely there are other prophets with experience and knowledge. And I'm, I'm this kid. What are his thoughts at this point? Yet he just goes and lays down. And what happens in verse number ten? The Lord came and stood. The idea of stand is to present oneself. He reveals himself to Samuel, and he called. As at other times, he'd done this before. Samuel, Samuel. And then Samuel answered, speak, for thy servant hear it. So you ask Samuel, the Lord speaking, what is it, Samuel, that you want? What, what would you seek to do, Samuel? He says, I, I want to hear what the Lord has to say. God wants to speak to me. I want to hear it. And, and Samuel would follow this pattern throughout his life, and God would affect drastic change in the nation of Israel through this prophet. He would anoint Saul, the king, the first king of Israel. And he would try to guide Saul. And when Saul went astray, he would announce the end of Saul's kingdom. And he would anoint the next king, David. And God used this man in a mighty way for many years. But it began with this. When God spoke, Samuel wanted to hear. And that's a question perhaps for us. God offers us whatever we would ask. Would we ask to hear him? Because we can we were just talking about it. He's revealed his word in its fullness, inspired, preserved, translated in English. or not in a nation where we're persecuted such that we don't have it. It's right here. The question is, do we want to hear him? And we could rephrase that. How often do you read from this book? Because we can hear him if we want to. It's right here. I'm holding it. I'm going to take this home with me today. And I can read from it anytime I choose. You might say, well, I'm here now. Right, so we come and and we hear preaching. Usually, it's Pastor Ferguson, maybe Pastor Scott, maybe Pastor Phelps or Pastor Toma. We we come in, we hear teaching. We come to Sunday school, and and actually, you know what? I'm going to come back tonight. I'm going to hear it. I'm going to hear it twice on Sunday, and and maybe you're one of those that'll even come in on Wednesday and you say three times a week I'm going to hear the Word of God preached. And I would say this: it's not enough. It's not enough. It has to be something that we seek, and we seek always, every day, and often more than once a day. To Joshua, God said this, this book of the law, and when he said the book of the law, he meant Genesis through Deuteronomy. It's all the Bible that Joshua had. So he's speaking of the word of God to Joshua. He says, it shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Do you want prosperity and success in life? What God seeks for you then you have to live by this book, and you won't know this book unless you read this book. That's what he's telling Joshua. When he says that it won't depart out of his mouth, he doesn't mean you won't speak it. He means you will never stop speaking it. It'll be in your mouth. It'll be meditated day and night. And to to, to the children of Israel through Moses, he had said this, that they should love the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul and with all their might. He'd say, well, I do. Then he said this, and these words which I command thee this day, which, by the way, are the book of Deuteronomy, he was writing as he spoke. He said, they shall be in thine heart and thou shalt teach them diligently, carefully to your children. He references sitting down and rising up and going to bed and getting up and going and coming and all the time. The word of God to be taught. How are we going to teach it if we don't know it? How are we going to know it if we don't read it? I love the way that Peter put this in 2 Peter 1.19. He says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. He speaks of the Bible, but the question is more sure than what? Well, he'd just been talking about an event that happened in his own life. He, Peter, James, and John, they'd gone with Jesus up into a mountain. And for a few minutes, this incredible thing happened. The veil of his deity, his flesh. i don't know Somehow he, he, he pulled that back to where they saw the glory of God revealed in Christ. And he spoke with Moses and Elijah. And the voice of the Father from heaven spoke. And he saw it. And he heard it. Do you think Peter forgot that day? No. I don't think Peter ever forgot that day. But Peter said we have a more sure word right here. Peter's memory could fail him. Peter's thoughts could be confused. Peter's heart could lie to him. But this is more sure. And what does he say about it? He says, "Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place. And I would submit to you that the world that we live in is a dark place. That our nation is a dark place. That many workplaces are dark places. Sometimes our homes have more darkness than they ought to have. But this, this is the light that shineth in a dark place. So my question is, do you want to hear from him? Because we can. Are you hearing from him? Well, how else might might we answer that question? Solomon said, I need wisdom. I need God's wisdom to apply to my life. Samuel wanted to hear from the Lord. Jesus had words to say about it as well. Would you turn to Matthew with me? The first book in the New Testament, Matthew. In Matthew chapters 5 and 6 and 7, Jesus is speaking to the people. He's teaching them. There were so many that it was hard to address the crowd. And so he had gone up into a high place, into a mountain. The land of Israel is full of mountains and high places and hill country So he's gone up into a mountain and it says his disciples came unto him, not just the twelve, but many. And when he was set, then he spoke and he taught them for these three chapters, practical things for how to live life, how God would have us to live. And in all of that, he comes to a statement in chapter six where he says that we can't serve two masters. He says we can't serve God and serve money, the desire for the wealth of this world. We can't can't do both. And that leads him to verse twenty five. So in Matthew six twenty-five, 25, he says, Therefore, you can't serve two masters, so therefore I say unto you, that take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on, is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment. And he goes into talking about birds and flowers and how these things that God's made, we can go out and see them, and they do just fine. And they're not worried about serving mammon, serving money. He's making a distinction in where the priority of our life lies. Do we serve God? Or do we serve the things of this world and this life that we might try to accrue to ourselves? He says, you can't do both. So he says then, take no thought for those. Look down to verse number 31. He says it again, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? Now some of us, it's very early still. Oh, you know what? Uh Uh-oh, the clock's not back there. Man, you're in danger now. I mean, I was looking at times. I was like, well, Pastor Ferguson usually goes like, like 50 minutes. So should I be like 50 minutes or something? And and then I saw that Dr. Getch on Sunday morning after teaching Sunday school, he only went like 35. And then this morning, Max was telling me that, was it D.L. Moody? He said, preach for 20 minutes. I mean, I'm not even going to be started in 20 minutes, but uh, we'll, we'll see. Well, I've got a clock here. And if I can get my train of thought back, then, then we'll be... Uh, oh, yes, eating, what shall we eat? Well, that, that brought that to mind. It's early in the service, but some are probably already thinking, what shall we eat? And it's not so much whether we'll eat, it's like, you know, will my spouse agree on the place we're going? Or was there something put in the oven before we left? Or are there leftovers in the fridge? Or whatever the case happens to be, we in our country don't usually think about, am I going to have food to eat? I mean, we're affluent enough We don't worry about that. We don't worry about whether I'm going to have clothes. Like We're going to have clothes, probably. But in this culture, these are things they did often worry about. They were an agrarian society, a farming-based society, where from year to year, your hope was to have enough crops to have enough to eat for the next year. And so this was a very real concern, whether they would survive. And yet Jesus says, "Don't, don't worry about those things. That's not what's primarily important. And he tells them what is in verse 33. He says, seek ye first. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. It says, God knows what you have need of before you ask. Don't worry about those. Seek his kingdom. So I might say, if God were to say, ask what I shall give thee. What is it that you seek? Would you answer, I'm seeking your kingdom? There's a question as to what that means. Because the disciples sought his kingdom, right? I mean, they came to him on multiple occasions. Are you now going to set up your kingdom? And what did they mean? You know, are you going to become a great military commander and throw off the Romans and make Israel a great nation and prosperous and you know the greatest nation in the world? Is that what you're? Go- and, and by the way, when you do that, of course, you'll have a throne, right? And and on each side of the throne, there will be other people, and you need to choose someone to sit there. And and uh, well, I, I'm here, you know, and my brother or whoever. I mean, they're they're constantly thinking about. This, this political military kingdom that will set up and where their place will be in the hierarchy that will be created, and yet he didn't set up his kingdom the first time he came. In years since, people have thought this too. In the 1800s and the great missionary movement of that era, and it was wonderful as the gospel went out into the world, but you'll find it reflected even in some of our hymns written in that time period that there were certain groups of people that would look at it and say, well, the gospel's going out, and one day we'll, we'll convert the whole world. And Jesus will return to a ready-made kingdom of, of just billions of Christians. And then 1900s, they, they came, World War I and World War II, and things that have happened since, and things that have happened in the last two years and three years. And, and that thinking is more or less gone away now. We, we can look to Scripture and see God does bring revivals, God does bring awakenings, but ultimately this world is trending away from him. And When he comes again, he will come as a conqueror, king of kings and lord of lords, and he will set up a kingdom physical kingdom, but that's not the kingdom we're seeking because his kingdom is always first spiritual before it's physical. In Matthew 23 and Luke 13, Jesus looked at Jerusalem and he said, how often would he have gathered them together as a hen would gather chickens under her wing, shelter, protection, provision. He would, but then what did he say? Ye would not. They rejected their Messiah. They didn't want God. They didn't want repentance. They didn't want him and so they did not see the kingdom established. It's always first a spiritual kingdom. And if we're going to seek his kingdom, then what do we do? First of all, I'd say we represent it. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, I am crucified. What I was, it's gone. It's Christ that lives in me. I am a testimony of him. I'm a representative of of him in this wicked world. And to the point that he said our life is so different that in Romans 6, he said, knowing this, that our old man, what we once were, it is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed that henceforth from now on, we should not serve sin. For he that's dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And he said, then let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Don't let sin be king that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So in Christ, we are transformed, we are changed. We are then representatives of our king, of the kingdom of which we are. So how's that testimony, whether it be at home or here or in a workplace? Often our testimony here is really good. We dress up, you know, and make sure the tie's just right, and usually I don't have to worry about, scratching a mic but you know we get we get everything just new glasses are clean mostly uh-huh and uh shaved this morning and so you know what we look really good and we speak the right things but when i go to work tomorrow what is my attitude like what are my words like there am i representing the king if i seek his kingdom i'm going to represent him we can also promote it we can promote him we can worship our king and I love the music that's done here and and the singing of all the people lifting him up. One of the words that's used in the Old Testament for worship is the word to be high, but the verb. So to raise up. And David says, the Lord liveth and blessed be my rock and exalted, lifted up, be the God of the rock of my salvation. Another word used in the Old Testament is halal. It means to praise or to wonder at. And actually, you know this word because sometimes we sing hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Hallelujah is just the second person, masculine, plural imperative. So you all are the subject, and, and the verb means to praise. So you all praise, and Yah is the short form of his personal name. So what does it mean? It means praise the Lord. So when you're saying hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelu, hallelujah, you're just translating, really. That's all you're doing. It's, it's wonderful. I think it's really cool. But this it means to wonder at him, to praise him, to worship him. And David says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. He is the praised one. He is the praised one. Daniel understood this. In chapter 2 of Daniel, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and he's really disturbed by it, and he wakes up, and it's gone. Does that ever happened to you? You know, maybe it's, it's pizza too late. I have a tendency to put really spicy sauce on pizza. And so if I eat that at, like, 8 or 9, you know, like, all kinds of things happen while I'm sleeping. And, and, like, I don't, it makes no sense. You know, you turn around and you're in a totally different place with different people that you've never met before and weird things are happening. And you wake up and you're like, I'm going to tell. It was so strange. I, I Surely I'll remember. And it's gone. Has that ever happened to you? This is what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, but he's like really upset by it because something's bad and he doesn't know what it is. So he calls in all his wise men, his astrologers and ma- magicians, and these are people that don't know God, but they're they're known as wise men. Uh, when Daniel had been taken captive into Babylon, eventually he'd been put into their ranks. So he worships the Lord, follows the Lord, he's faithful, but all these other guys, not so much. Well, he calls them in and he says, okay, I had this dream and it's terrible, so tell me what it means. Oh, well, tell us the dream and We'll interpret. Well, I don't know the dream. But if you tell us the dream, we will interpret. No, you tell me the dream and then interpret it also. And they say, we, we this is not how this works. We, we can't do this. And they're, they're trying to be respectful, you know, right? Like he's the king. He has great authority. They say, but we can't. And he says, okay, then you're all going to die, right? And give it a little bit of time. If you can't tell me the dream and interpret the dream, you are not what you claim to be, and you are all going to die. And I believe make your houses a dunghill, I think, as well. So... Not a good situation. Uh, I suppose if they're dead, it doesn't matter what happens to their house anyway. But uh, he just wants to put the exclamation point on there, right? So they, they come to Daniel and they say, what are we going to do? And he prays and God tells him the dream. And God tells him the interpretation. So Daniel knows, right? He's got the information. He goes into the king and the king says this. He says, art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? Thou is a singular pronoun. He's looking at Daniel and he says, you. Are you able to tell me this? Now question, is Daniel able to tell him? God has told Daniel the dream, and God has told Daniel the interpretation. Can Daniel tell him? Yeah. yeah. Daniel can say, of course. I mean, I don't know why you called all these fools in here to begin with. They don't know anything. But me, yeah, I mean, I can I can tell you anything you need to know. That's not what he says, though. Daniel says, but there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar, what shall be in the latter days. And later he says, but as for me, this secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living. He says, all these other guys that couldn't tell you anything, I'm, I'm no different. I'm just a man. But there's a God in heaven, and he reveals it. So if you're at work tomorrow and somebody says, it's a great work ethic. We didn't think we'd get this done, but you came through. At this, this is great. What do you say? Well, I mean, my upbringing, and uh, it's it's the way I am. You know, I just know what I'm doing. And it's good that you came to me, because you knew when you came to me, it would get done, and it'd get done right. And, you know, that other guy that's up for the promotion, he's worthless, of course, you know this. But but I, you know, no. No, there's a God in heaven, and He's made me what I am, and He's made you what you are, if you're a believer in Christ, and He's working on us, and He's working on us to improve us and to make us more like Him. But the glory is His. We represent him, we can promote him, but notice we can also call others to join in. Would you flip a few books further forward to John, the Gospel of John? In the first chapter, John the Baptist, not the author of the book, but John the Baptist is preaching and teaching. He's preaching repentance, a change of mind because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's at hand because the king is coming. And so as he teaches, he saw Jesus, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He proclaims who he is, and, and his disciples are one by one turning to follow Christ. And this was John's point, John the Baptist. And so as this is going on in verse 35 of John chapter 1, we're told again the next day, the next day after, John stood and two of his disciples. So here's John the Baptist, two of his disciples, and he sees Jesus. And in verse 36, looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? Which I think is an interesting question in today's context, because that's what we're asking. What do we seek? What is it we desire? What is it these two desired? And they said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted Master, where dwellest thou? They want to be where he is. He saith unto them, Come and see. And they came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He's the less popular brother. They were called the sons of thunder, so they had some similarities about them. I think Peter was just faster, and so it was Peter's foot that was in his mouth all the time. Like Andrew would have, but Peter just beat him to it. You ever have that? Like you're going to say something, oh, somebody beat me to it. Well, this, this is Peter. He's, he's saying things he shouldn't say, and Andrew's just right behind him. But here he is, actually meeting Jesus first. This is Andrew, but what does he do? Verse 41, he first findeth his own brother Simon, Simon Peter. And he saith unto him, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ, the anointed one, the promised one of the Old Testament, come to take our sins. He finds his brother. Look down to verse 43, the day following. So here we are on the next day. Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and he findeth Philip, and saith unto him, follow me. Now, Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, which makes sense. It's one day after another. He's in the same area. He's just headed up into Galilee now. But what does Philip do? Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found the Messiah. He identifies him. He brings him to Jesus, both of these guys. Tonight, you'll have an opportunity to hear from uh, our mission strip that just went to Peru. The different members of the team went down there. Recently, we've had another team that went to, to New York City. If I can add my own plug for this, I know it'll be said tonight, but if you get a chance and God enables you to go on one of these trips, go. Um, God radically changed my life with one of these trips, actually. Some of you were there. Amanda and Amanda, you were there. Phil, you were there. I've got a picture of Phil with the intern on his shoulders like this. I don't remember what his name was. I have another picture of Pastor Gerber, our then youth pastor. Dress shirt, untucked like slunk back in a chair, arms hanging out. I mean, he looks like he's about to pass out, and I've never figured out if that was just like the intensity of ministry or us. It was a youth group trip, and uh, perhaps a little bit of both, dealing with the youth group in New York for a whole day. He, uh, he was done at the end of the day, I guess every day. But, but this trip, you know, we, we get put into situations that are outside of our comfort zone. Um, we prepare for them, but when it comes, it's just there. Like you're on a subway, and the train goes, and you have like three minutes and 49 seconds, 48, 47, 46. And you're tasked with giving the gospel to those that are there and the clock is ticking. Or you're, you're in a park and you've got a, a bunch of kids on a, on a tarp uh, so they don't you know sit on the asphalt or whatever. And then there are teens and adults standing around not listening, but listening. You know what I mean? They're, they're there and they're, they're looking the other way, but their ears are pointed toward you. And you're, you're giving the gospel. Why is it that we need situations like that sometimes to force us to do what we've decided to do? These guys, I mean, this is the first thing they did. You see the word first. The one goes and finds his brother. Hey, you've got to meet Jesus. The other, he goes and finds a friend. We've found him. The one that we need, come and meet him. You think of the woman at the well in Samaria. She goes into the city and says, come see a man that told me everything I ever did. And the whole city comes out to meet him. Invite others to join in. So if we're going to seek his kingdom, represent the king, represent him, promote him, lift him up, and invite others to join in as well. Let's look at one other example. We see one from the Old Testament perhaps. I know we looked at, at Solomon, of course, to kind of get us started with this question. But then Samuel, and then what Jesus taught here. And then if you would go forward to Philippians, we'll see what Paul thought. In Philippians 3, Paul's actually talking he, he well sometimes i do things like he does i suppose you start talking about one thing and then that leads you to another and then and then another and then and then another and if you're pastor Toman, you're already gone cuz he saw a squirrel somewhere um but you know we, we, we get this where we go from one thing to the next now he's doing this paul is under divine inspiration giving the words that god has for us to think logically through different concepts and he's talking about people that lift themselves up in what they have accomplished. And that leads him to think of himself and what he could have claimed. So if you're in Philippians 3 here, look down to verse number 4. He says, speaking of these others that would have confidence in their flesh, he says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. It's a little boastful, uh, but that's his point. He could lift himself up in pride if he chose. Well, what is it that he might appeal to? He says in verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now, why does that matter? We're not Hebrews. We don't see this. But uh, especially in their day, perhaps still many of them today, I suppose, uh, they see themselves as the nation that God chose because they are. It is through them that he would bring forth the Messiah. He gave them the Old Testament. And so there was this, this pride in being an Hebrew a Jew, and they would look down on the Gentiles around them, these heathen nations. And so if you're looking at Jewish people as being potentially able to have a pride problem, Paul says, I, I'm more than them. I was in Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was the cream of the crop. But not only that, then he says, as touching the law, I was a Pharisee. So of this people that are largely religious, I was like in the upper echelon of these that adhered to the strictest sense of our religion. Uh, the word of God and what they had added to it. This was him. He then says, what about his zeal? Concerning zeal, he persecuted the church. So he didn't just sit around at home and study the word of God and claim to be something wonderful. He followed on to other towns and other places and persecuted those that would resist his understanding of the truth, which was wrong at the time, Saul of Tarsus. But this is who he was. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. The idea of blameless is that nothing will stick. No accusation will stick. So he says, if anybody would take the law of Moses and all of the things that we had added to Torah and and all of these requirements that we had made, and they'd said, well, hey, you know what? Paul failed right here. It wouldn't stick. Like nobody could point out a flaw in him from a human perspective. He seemed essentially perfect. He says, this is what I was. But he couldn't appeal to that. because he said also that the law had said, thou shalt not covet. He said, if it hadn't said that, I wouldn't have realized it, but I I knew I was a sinner. There was sin, and sin's a problem. No matter how much good I did, no matter how highly I might have been looked at in the eyes of other people, I had sin, and this this was the problem. And so he says in verse number 7, But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, they got in the way. Yea, doubtless, he says, no doubt about it in verse 8, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. So if you stack up all of his own accolades and his own achievements over here, and before man, he looks really good. He says, I read that thou shalt not covet. And I knew I needed help. I knew I was a sinner. But if I'm going to look over and i can see what Christ has accomplished. God in human flesh, sinless shedding his blood, dying on Calvary, being buried, rising again, that I could be saved. I can't believe in him and hold on to all of this. So he says, all these things that were gained to me, all of my pride, all the things that I could look up at to in myself, dung It's actually not worthless, it's worse than worthless. It would prevent me coming to christ if i would trust in myself he's got to make a decision and he did he left all of that behind this is salvation how does it result in his life he says in verse 9 and be found in him not having mine own righteousness which is of the law but that which is through the faith of christ the righteousness which is of god by faith my righteousness my works were not enough but the righteousness of god that's enough but it only comes through faith faith in jesus christ so he says in verse 10, that I may know him. This is the result of his salvation. He knows Christ. He understands the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. He's been made conformable unto his death. He says, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. The resurrection from a dead, lifeless corpse. When this life ends and his physical body dies, he's looked at all these other means. The Hebrew of the Hebrews thing, and the zeal of persecuting the church thing, and the blamelessness in the law, and he says... This won't get me to the resurrection of the dead. Only Christ will. Christ is the means. He is the way. And so he's left all of that and trusted in Christ. Now, all of this is a discussion of salvation, how it is that we can have forgiveness of sin. But he doesn't stop there because he knows one day this physical body will die, and it did. He died, likely a martyr in Rome after his second imprisonment. And he's in glory now with Christ. And he'll see the resurrection, but it wasn't just about what's in the future for Paul. It meant something for that day, because God doesn't just save us to deliver us from the presence of sin in heaven one day. He saves us to make us something different now, to deliver us from the power of sin now. And so Paul goes on and he says in verse 12, not as though I'd already attained, either we're already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Why was he apprehended by Christ? that God would make him like himself. And Paul says, I'm reaching out, trying to apprehend that. I want to be like him. I want to know him. He doesn't count himself to have apprehended in verse 13, but this one thing he does, what does he do? He forgets those things which are behind, and he reaches forth to those things which are before, and he presses toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You might say, that's great for Paul. If God said to Paul, ask what I shall give thee, what do you seek, what do you want, Paul? Paul. I think he might have just answered, I want to to know you. I want to be like Christ. This is the goal of his life. He had said it in Galatians 2, I read it earlier, crucified with Christ, yet he lives, but it's Christ that lives in him. This is Paul's desire, is to be like his Savior. He said that's great for him, but you know, it's for us too. Look at verse 15. He says, let us therefore, as many as be perfect, as many as are complete, you have understanding, he says, be thus minded think this way. Agree with me. Seek to be like Christ. And he says it again in verse 17. He says, Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so, as you have us for an example. It says, me and others that have the same mindset, that are seeking to know Christ, to be like Christ, to be conformed to his image, mark those. And th- these are your examples. It's not a pride thing here. He knows he needs Christ. And he says, you do too. So, Think this way. And in fact, he'll go on to say in verses 18 and 19 that those that mind earthly things, those whose minds are set to this stuff that Paul might have had pride in, says they're the enemies of Christ. God wants nothing to do with that. So if God were to ask, what is it that you see? What is your answer? Solomon sought for wisdom. He knew that he was not capable of dealing with the situations in life that would be presented to him. He said, I want wisdom from God to, to deal with these things. Samuel said, when God speaks, I want to hear God speak. And we have that here. And Jesus said, seek my kingdom, not the things of this life that you see around you that, that distract. And Paul says, I, I want to be like Christ. And you see what's common in all of these. It's him. This life is about Him, the desire to be like Him. I said before that these last couple of weeks, as this has come to mind at times, there's that one word that comes to mind each time. To be very transparent, it wasn't this. And it's true that as this life moves forward, each of us, God is guiding. He says, delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. He'll guide our desires. He says, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. It means established and set. So God is guiding each of us, and at different stages of life and different situations that come up, he will give us a desire to accomplish different things, but none of them can come before that which is preeminent. And what is preeminent? It's him. It's him. So that's my question this morning. If God came to you tonight, As you're going to sleep, and he said, ask what I shall give thee. What is your answer? What is your question for him? What is it that you are seeking? Are you seeking him? Let's seek him. Pray with me, would you?